let's let's be perfectly honest here. Most of the fear that influenced uh, cowardice, it, it was not a fear of being put in jail. It was not a fear of being fined so heavily by the government that my church would close down. In in many 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 instances, it was simply a fear of being called names. It was a, a fear of being mischaracterized or slandered. It was a fear of what what will people say. It was a basic level of excessive human respect for what the culture, and particularly the, the culture despisers of religion, might say about my church if I do this. What political category are they going to put me in that I don't want to be associated with? And you know, fear of what other people will think, fear of what other people will say. You know, this is this is not pastors and church leaders facing a, a serious form of martyrdom. This is this is a level of cowardice that I think we need to reckon with. I wonder if you have a category as a psychiatrist for what happens next. Is that that fear uh, then gets translated into? The virtue of having kept unity. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. Right, exactly. Uh, because because if, I, I think the if, mistake we might make, yeah. we're going back to what the Doug just said, that we actually think when these churches were addressed, uh, you know, in Revelation two, this is what you're, this is what you are doing. As the, I don't think in every case they knew that that they were doing, but they were quite sincerely doing something they thought they were doing, and then light is shone on it, and they realize, okay, this is. Yes, we have to repent. We're doing this wrong. And I think we're, we have to do this as a yeah, church now. Right. Because I do think that the pastor mentioned people like that. I've heard it in other churches too. Um, <laughs> is, is, uh, we've kept the peace and we have, we have emphasized love of neighbor. And that is, but I think what you said earlier, Aaron, is at the cost of the essentials, at the cost of the, the Christ who demands of us to, uh, look into human flourishing holistically and all of that. Yeah. And, and just, then, just to intervene very quickly on that point, we've already heard uh, from some of you very rightly that the neighbor that we claim to have protected is, is really ourselves, okay? That the, the poor, the vulnerable, the sick, the dying, these people we did not protect. These, the, the people trampled on economically we did not protect the people whose political liberties are being lost we did not protect so i don't want to think that uh there's i mean i do not think that there's very much justification for patting ourselves on the back about how we loved our neighbors who is my neighbor <laughs> all right that question was asked of jesus and the neighbor to the one in the ditch was the Samaritan. There was no, there was no natural connection. All right, but we've we've watched the world's poor being trampled. We've got no business talking about we loved our neighbor. So, an anecdote here, and then a question in reference to what's just been said. The anecdote is a friend of ours, somebody we know quite well, had written a paper and. They knew that because it was questioning the COVID narrative, it was going to cause a stir amongst their church and their family. And they had a moment when they were in church where they came and received communion. And they realized that what God was calling them to lay down on the altar as they're receiving the blood and the body of Christ 
is their reputation. Right. And it right. was, and I, and I think that's poignant, Aaron, because you're exactly right that in our culture today, what we are most worried about is being found on the outside that's right. of the general population to be accused of being any kind of phobe or to become a pariah of the, of the general consensus. It is a profound weakness in the church. And it leads me then to ask this question. Very, very helpfully, we have used the terminology that you brought up, Aaron, of non-negotiable. I think the church needs to identify, if it is not to fall into some traps again, or to be deceived. And I think one of the categories I'm using here is, there was a deception. Absolutely. We are very gullible creatures. We don't know. I have a lot of compassion for the people in the pew. We were awfully confused. It was hard. I'm a pastor. Did we do it right? Not completely. But I do think going forward, we need to ask a question about what are the non-negotiables and to really help the church by identifying them. I, what I'm hearing from some of the things Doug said earlier and that Aaron has picked up on is preachers should probably be teaching on the doctrine of sin, because if we don't have a robust doctrine of sin, we are not going to, we're going to be gullible and um, lack the kind of suspicion or curiosity that we need to have in terms of what's going on. That's we right. we need to have yes we need and to you're have, also not going to have a sense that you need a redeemer yes. that's true yeah we also need to have an adult conversation about um, church and state again yes. because we have taken it for granted we have and I've heard Jordan Peterson say this a few times we have been living in societies in the West for a while where on the whole and toto we've been able to trust our uh, run, governing institutions. And so the idea that one would become corrupt is quite foreign to us. That one would intentionally mislead us is quite foreign to us. I'm not saying they did at this point, but... They did. They, maybe they it. did, yes. yes okay, they there you did. Go. <laughs> well, we know they did. We know very clearly now that they, the governing authorities in supposedly free Western societies, United States, Canada, Great Britain... Australia, elsewhere, deliberately deployed fear, deliberately de deployed highly refined uh, military and intelligence grade propaganda in order to induce and coerce compliance with government directives. We know that that happened. Those, we have the receipts for that. Uh, many of the people involved in the UK's behavioral nudge unit, for example, have, have come out to their credit publicly and repented and said, this was totalitarian, what I was involved in here. And I'm sorry that I was a part of it. There's a handful of at least four or five members of that program that have publicly repudiated their involvement with it. So, yeah, w we were deceived. We were lied to. And uh, and our Lord warned us who the who the father of lies is, and so the, the reality of sin, the reality of our fallen nature, um, has to be a key component of the proclamation of the good news, and overcoming this "what will people think" mentality. And I, I think we can look to the early church that had no PR agencies that had very little by way of means of communication in the in the Roman world. And that was mischaracterized and slandered 
left and right. Early Christians hiding out in the catacombs were accused of cannibalism because they were eating the body and blood of somebody, right? right? So, uh, and and yet they just kept doing what they what they did, and they didn't abandon their mandate to care for the least among us. And so they they attracted people not because you know everyone was saying nice things about them. And everyone was accurately describing who they were and what they were about. They attracted people because people noticed, well, uh, the husbands are faithful to their wives. Women noticed that. At least they they try to be. They profess to be. They noticed uh, that they care for and don't abandon their infants, particularly those who may be defective or disabled in some way. It was a common Roman practice, not only abortion, but infanticide was ubiquitous in the Roman world of the early Christians. They noticed that the Christians cared for the sick. So, you know, if you're sick, uh, if there's a plague in the city, the the only ones who stayed back to help you were this, you know, this this religious group that we're talking about, this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's the witness, I think, that we have to give now when we're in a culture that's hostile to us, when we're in a culture that is always going to be inclined to mischaracterize the actions of churches and, you know, accuse you of wanting to kill grandma because, uh, you know, you're continuing to minister to people during an epidemic or a pandemic. And to to overcome that uh, excessive concern for what will people say, what will people think? um, And, and oftentimes even that is subtly couched under our evangelical mandate, right? Well, if we're going to be attractive to people, then we don't want them saying anything bad about the, uh, us because that will hinder the gospel mission. Well, I think that's a very subtle temptation of, of the enemy. Yes. If it leads you to uh, unquestioningly abandon central aspects of the mission that Christ gave us, for the sake of what is the world going to think, and just just to that point, um, it, it's also it, it the temptation may operate subtly, but the the logic is is um, is very strange because we now live in a society that has returned wholesale to the. Roman practice, the pre-Christian Roman practice of abandoning unwanted infants, we don't have to carry them to term and put them in the dump where Christians would go and collect them and raise them. Uh, we, we, we get in there and, and abort them and so forth. So, you know, in, in, in Montreal uh, in the past month, you know, there was a baby aborted at full term. And at first, the hospital more or less denied that this had happened, but they've now admitted it happened and tried to turn the tables by saying, um, you know, it's awful that anyone attempted to prevent this. That's that's just not acceptable. Um, we, We live in that kind of society. We live in a society where children are... Um, uh, in in a certain spiritual and psychological sense, abducted from their parents and taught to question their sexual uh, nature, and then led into treatments that mutilate and 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 destroy them. When you live in that kind of a society, 
why would you ever think that it's somehow helpful to make, maintain a reputation as being not a troublemaker? I mean, this, 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 is, this is absurd. If, you, if you're going to hold to human dignity on any level, never mind um, evangelically and, and on a Christian level, you, you're going to have to stand out and stand up against that kind of thing. So if you don't do it in one area, you won't do it in another area either. You, you have to be consistent about your willingness to stand out and uh, by standing up. So it's, it's a testing also of our courage and whether we are willing to be coherent even on that basic level where we say, no, we cannot, it doesn't matter the cost, we cannot go along with this, we cannot be complicit in it. And when we watch the, the, uh, the processes of government being corrupted so that it becomes illegal to protect children, what is this business about honoring the emperor? The emperor has no mandate from God to do the things the emperor is doing. So we as Christians have no mandate to honor the emperor doing things that the emperor is forbidden by God to do. And a church that could recognize that the governing authorities or healthcare institutions, you know, may not be entirely reliable when it comes to abortion or euthanasia uh, or gender ideology, to then turn around in the next declared crisis and say we have to put all of our trust in government in the same government that was making mistakes in those domains you know just last week uh but on this they're they're going to be treated as an infallible oracle i i find that you know to be rather implausible so there is a healthy degree of skepticism that should have been at work uh already just based on prior experience with these institutions and yet, I mean, these governments, maybe this can get us into the next segment. I mean, these governments, while we've seen them fail, and this goes from, you know, uh, our provincial governments all the way to the World Health Organization, are at the same time clamoring for ever more power, for right. ever more. We're supposed to surrender ever more sovereignty and trust uh, to them. So how would the church be prepared if that keeps going, you know, to, to resist? Well, I think one thing that um, uh, has been mentioned here is that this was a test. And uh, in the vast majority of cases, the church failed this test. And therefore, it, it's, it is not a great harbinger for what's coming next and if it will be able to withstand the test coming next. One of the things I think we should make very clear in um, to whoever is listening here, especially if it's pastors and leaders, is uh, we talked about non. They should determine what is a non-negotiable, and I think uh, in um, one of those has to be truth. Uh, truth is one of the non-negotiables that um, we as Christians and Christian leaders should not be willing to compromise on. And what that means is we do not put unity above truth. Because there cannot be unity in lies and in untruth. Unity can only come in the truth. And I think in this case, a lot of, a lot of the leaders uh, did put unity above truth. And, uh, and what example they were following in that, I do not know. It's certainly not the example of the, uh, the Bible and the biblical characters, and certainly not Christ and Paul, who did not do that. Um, Aaron already mentioned the John 6 discourse, 
where after Jesus had that discourse, many left. Another one is the Matthew 19, the, 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 who is, um, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and, and asked him, what should I do uh, to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus gave him the commands, and he said, I've done all of those. And then he said, but well, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and come and follow me, which he could not do. And Jesus let him go. He didn't, um, he didn't uh, try to keep him, uh, especially he didn't, Jesus did not give him any compromised ethic after that, saying, well, if you can't do 100%, well, how about 80%? Can you do that? He did not negotiate. He lay, laid the truth out, and it was up to him to follow or not. And, of course, the other place is Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, who um, um, says that, yeah, divisions will exist because there is truth, and, and where truth exists, there will be those who divide themselves up over that. And this is why divisions, there are divisions among you, so that the genuine might be known. And in both those cases, it's interesting, it has to do, uh, somewhere along the line in both of those cases, are the poor. Uh, in the case of the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And in the First Corinthians 11 case, it was because the rich were abusing the poor at the Lord's Supper of all places. So, yes, looking after your neighbor has been a big theme here, and the church, I think, failed that very drastically and very grievously. Hopefully we can do better, and that might get us to the next test that may be coming down the, down the pike. So it's instructive. Notice the kind of things that we've heard and that we were telling ourselves and or being told. You must keep the unity. We must protect the vulnerable. And uh, Douglas, you had made the point very recently that um, there's a bit of a dynamic of the temptation of Christ going on here, where biblical principles and or texts will be used. But we need to be as shrewd as our Lord who is able to detect when these, t- these are being used in an imbalanced way or in a way that is actually going to promote our unfaithfulness. I thought it was a very profound point. And one of the things that in the church we do need to be on the lookout for is the use of language, because language is being transmogrified uh, to great effect. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, on the language issue, um, we've had um, uh, pagan prophets for decades now, or well, obviously leaps to mind, but uh, who have warned us that that totalitarianism proceeds uh, by the the inversion of linguistic uh, truth and the corruption of language. Um, and the creative use of language that is not in service to the truth, but in service to lies and, and customs people to, to receiving and operating on lies, and indeed um, robs them of their capacity to use language in, a, in, a way, in the way that God gives us language to use in, in our articulating and, and developing our comprehension of the truth. Um, the, the, the sloganizing has been a remarkable, uh, predictable, but nevertheless remarkable achievement, uh, during, during the pandemic. And the love your neighbor meme was one of the, uh, the worst in my judgment, because 
it is taking up Moses and Jesus and using it to to sell a product and to promote an agenda. Uh, and uh, Christian leaders were in some cases groomed for years, in other cases only for months, but groomed to use this language. I mean, there are people sitting in rooms strategizing about how to appropriate the language of different religious groups to get them on board with this. And it was the, the campaign was tremendously effective, as was the fear porn that was pumped out for general consumption from the beginning of the pandemic, which ought to have been immediately assigned to us that something was fundamentally wrong. But um, uh, yes, I, I, I think we have larger problems than language. Um, uh, there's no more fundamental problem than language. Um, when it comes, you can't communicate the gospel if the language has been perverted. You can't say what it means to love the neighbor if everyone's already accepted a false mean, meaning to love the neighbor without a lot of rectification, a lot of, of, of clarification of what love is and who the neighbor is and how one goes about loving the neighbor. So language is very much bound up with the problems we face, but we've got, a, we've got another problem as, as we know, and that is that the very idea of the neighbor having a name and a face is under attack. The face was under attack with the masking. The name is under attack with numerical digital identities in place of names. And there's an assault on the neighbor as such, on the human being as such, and the dignity of the human being as such, and on the liberties of the human being. God-given liberties that belong to rational volitional agents who reflect uh, the, the the nature of God himself. So we, we we've got to prepare for that. We ha this is we're not done with this. this. This is only the first phase of a much longer and more difficult war. Well, as we've been speaking about the tests that the church might encounter in the future, um, there's there's uh, one such possibility that we've already partially experienced with the COVID pandemic, which is uh, when healthcare becomes. Uh, a political item, it becomes uh, surveyed by the state, uh, administered by the state. Um, and Aaron Kiriati, who's with us today, has written a book on this called The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And, um, I mean, Aaron, you can correct me. I see you in a long line of, of critics, at least since the 1920s, uh, that have, have uh, called attention to how the state begins to be a managerial state, how the, the medical uh, healthcare system becomes a system and uh, a bureaucratically, technocratically administered system. And I think we've seen a lot of uh, evidence of that in the COVID pandemic, and you've put this together. So tell us more about what that threat might be that the church may well face in the future, and we have already felt it uh, in the last three years. Right. <clears throat> so I think you're correct. I, I would be honored to be placed in that line of, of critics. I would think of Ivan Illich, who in the 1970s described in a book called Medical Nemesis that when the medical bureaucracy grows to a, a certain kind of leviathan size, medicine starts doing more harm than good. Uh, 
most of the harms, most of the problems are what doctors call iatrogenic, meaning actually induced by the treatments that were supposed to be conducive to health. And I think we saw that in spades during the pandemic. Had we done nothing, we would have saved more lives than, than we're damaged, than we're harmed by lockdowns, school closures, uh, vaccine-related injuries. All-cause mortality did not rise in 2020 when we had a virus and we didn't have a vaccine. But all-cause mortality rose spectacularly in 2021 during the mass vaccination campaign, continued to be high in 2022 and 2023, in fact, 40% above uh, the previous five-year baseline, which a 10% rise in all-cause mortality actuaries tell us is a once-in-200-year catastrophic event. So this is, this is far beyond that. Uh, this is a, a spike that we haven't seen since that no- metric has started to be measured uh, about 100 years ago. So we've done a lot of harm. And <clears throat> what I argue in the book, the subtitle of the book is the biomedical, the rise of the biomedical security state. What I argue in the book is that behind the scenes, there's been a 25-year development of this new biosecurity model, not just of managing a pandemic, but of governance, of social control. And that was first manifested publicly during the pandemic. But the last three years in COVID was just sort of taking the initial steps of the rollout of this biosecurity regime. So I also describe in the book what the next steps are going to look look like, what they're going to involve during the next declared public health crisis. And just briefly in a nutshell, the, what I mean by the biomedical security straight state is a confluence of three different elements that used to be more or less distinct. The first is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. The second is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control to manage entire populations during a declared crisis. So you you could think of the QR code-based vaccine passport system or the the mass surveillance (laughs) that we now know was done in the United States, Canada, uh, Israel, and other places by, without the knowledge and consent of the public, extracting track and trace data from mobile phones to track individual movements, to track social gatherings, to track compliance with lockdowns and school closures. How many people are gathering at this particular church at any given time? That was done by the CDC. That was done by the Canadian health authorities without the public's approval, knowledge, or consent. And then these two elements, an increasingly militarized public health apparatus, the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control, are backed up by the third element, which is the use of the police powers of the state. We can think of the Canadian uh, prime minister invoking the Emergency Act for the first time in Canadian history to not only forcibly remove the truckers from the city of Ottawa using a militarized police force, but also to freeze the bank accounts of not only the truckers, but anyone who contributed money to the truckers. So what I argue in the book, and I I would refer to readers of the book for a lot more detail on each of those three elements and on the use of the declared state of emergency or state of exception as the legal mechanism that made all of that possible. But what I argue is that COVID was just the beginning. And so I talk in chapter three about I think two key elements that would be worthy of our discussion and reflection and something that 
that Christians and certainly Christian leaders should be aware of and thinking about, and that is the uh, the use, the push now for the use of digital IDs, which will be tied to biometric data, and the use of central bank digital currencies, which are a mechanism, uh, as I argue, of financial control and don't actually operate the way that currencies operate. The name itself uh, is a bit of a misnomer. So the, the digital IDs are are now uh, tied into things like uh, facial recognition scans, iris scans, fingerprints. If anyone who's, who's gone through the, the clear system at the airport to skip to the head of the security line uh, would, would have given away to this private entity uh, that is uh, government-funded and partner partnering with in the United States Transportation Security Agency, other government agencies that that monitor airport security abroad. Uh, you would give away th- those things. You would also, if you read the fine print, you also uh, link the company to your credit score. So there's already a financial uh, information component to it. Uh, your name, your in the United States social security number, or other government identifying number, your address. Um, and this is a data gathering mechanism to track uh, travel and movements of of persons uh, being sold on the basis of convenience. You know, you're going to miss your flight if you if you don't kind of you know do this thing. And and eventually it'll it'll be tied into a digital identification, whereby you know you forgot your passport or your driver's license at home. No worries, you're not going to miss your flight. We'll just scan your iris, and we then will know who you are, and you will sail on through. And with the combination of digital IDs and the use of either wearable devices or implantable devices, uh, there will be uh, other biometric information that is gathered really on a continuous basis of individuals, things like heart rate, blood pressure, uh, skin conductance, moment-to-moment measures that can tell a person uh, on the other end a lot about your state of physical health. And a lot about actually your moment-to-moment emotional state, right? So you're sitting watching your your smart TV uh, with your smart watch or your smart implantable. Uh, let's say you're you're watching the the presidential debates in the United States. Well, your smart TV can be gathering data moment-to-moment to see what kind of emotional reaction you're having to each of the candidates as they speak or as they make their their points. Uh, that data can also be gathered, obviously, to be packaged up and sold to advertisers to see how you're reacting to mm-hmm. their their commercials and their attempts to market products to you. So that that will be the world of biometric based digital identification, and uh, and once that's tied into the central bank digital currencies, which is the financial information and financial control piece of things, we will have a level of surveillance and control and monitoring of entire populations that the totalitarian dictators of the past could only have dreamed of. So before we uh, analyze this theologically, uh, one point I do want you to uh, just reiterate, because I remember it from the book, um, which is really important because it happened during the pandemic, and there was a a, a shift that you mentioned in the pandemic, how we move from uh, fighting pathogen or pathogens yeah. to uh, controlling people, 
because that that yeah. that shift will continue in what you've what you've said. Can you can you just reiterate that? I thought that was profound and really important because people don't see yeah. and how they're placed into the language that's used. So I trace the origins of that shift that you just mentioned back to a conference held in Washington, D.C. in 1997, sponsored by Anthony Fauci with major players in international public health. And what was introduced there was a shift from seeing uh, the pathogen, the infectious virus or bacteria or fungus or you know whatever that we're trying to protect the human population from, seeing the virus as the enemy to be um, eradicated or to protect ourselves from, which would lead to traditional public health measures like, okay, if we're trying to protect ourselves from a virus, then our best protection is our immune system and we're going to do everything we can to strengthen that immune system through encouraging healthy behaviors like lowering stress levels because we know that high levels of stress compromise our immune system functioning by adequate levels of vitamin D, by healthy diet, by uh, good exercise, all of these things that have been known for decades to improve immune system functioning would be an important part of responding to a novel virus. Also, intervening early when people get infected with that virus would be a traditional way of trying to eradicate the enemy, so to speak. So a keen interest in early treatments rather than waiting for people to get sick enough that they need to go to the hospital because they can't breathe because they may require intubation or vent mechanical ventilation. Um, you know, early treatments, strengthening our defenses, um, protecting those who are most vulnerable, maybe because they're immunocompromised. That is traditional public health. What happened at that 1997 conference was the shift from seeing the pathogen as the enemy to seeing the human population itself as the problem to be solved because the human population itself could become a vector of disease. So if humans or the human population as a vector of disease is the problem that public health needs to manage, that requires unprecedented levels of surveillance, control, intrusive measures of the, the behavior of that population on a very micro level. We have to we have to dictate just how far apart from one another we stand. We have to um, we have to take radical measures to make sure that people don't gather together face to face. We have to we have to adopt untested means like lockdowns, uh, like digital surveillance, like coerced and forced mass vaccination in order to manage the entire population as a potential vector of disease. So that shift, which started about 25 years ago, has been building behind the scenes in public health, but we really only fully embrace that biosecurity model of public health starting in March of 2020 with the initial decision for lockdowns and school closures. And it, it did have a distinct um, bio-warfare feel. It did, right? I mean, without a doubt. I saw this across Europe too. All of a sudden, the military were engaged, the police were right. engaged in like massive showings. Uh, yeah, so that really pronounced shift, you know, um, confirming what you're saying in the book that that model is kind of already in place. The rhetoric yeah. of our leaders was we now need to be on a warfare footing. And just as an administrative matter in the United States, uh, you would expect that the Department of Health and Human Services, which is where our public health agencies were housed, our CDC, our NIH, and our FDA, 
the Department of Health and Human Services was not actually the one in charge of uh, our COVID response. At the top of the org chart, <coughs> excuse me, in the United States was the Department of Defense. So whether whether or not COVID was, uh, SARS-CoV-2 was a bioweapon, whether or not it was deliberately released or accidentally released on the population, our federal government in the United States treated it and treated the pandemic as though it was a biological attack. Right. Okay, so the question then is how do we respond? How does the church respond to this theologically, biblically? Yeah, so I'd like to um, <clears throat> ask a couple of questions about this from our, our group here. And that is this um, all-pervasive surveillance that is is already here to some extent and is only going to grow even um, more in the coming future. Uh, is that a bad thing uh, uh, that our governments know this about us? Uh, is it Can they not protect us uh, with this information? Will they not use it to our good? Uh, yes or no? And if it is not, then what do we do? How can we resist it? And um, that's the question we want to put out to our listeners and the church and our leaders. Um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And if it is not a good thing, then how do we lead our congregations in resisting this uh, being given to us? Because it looks like it might be a way of shutting us off from society if we do not accept this level of surveillance in whatever form it, um, it is given to us. And then thirdly, what does this mean for our humanity um, when the state gains this level of surveillance over us? Can we still maintain the biblical doctrine that we humans are created in God's image with the soul as well as out of the dust of the earth and so also have a body that belongs to the earth? These are important questions, I think, that we, that we need to discuss in light of what's coming down. Maybe I'll begin the discussion just to clarify for listeners uh, what I mean by a central bank digital currency. This may be a novel idea that a lot of folks aren't familiar with. So I explained a little bit, just a quick sketch of digital IDs. A central bank digital currency needs to be distinguished from a decentralized cryptocurrency like, like a Bitcoin. Because a central bank digital currency basically allows the government and any cooperating banks or other financial institutions to monitor and track each and every one of your transactions. So that's one one of the issues with it is just, you know, you're always operating in a in a fishbowl and other people who may have good intentions, may have not so good intentions, may have selfish motives or their own political agendas uh, can see what you do. But it turns out that they can actually control what you do as well. And, and here's how. The central bank digital currency is not actually a currency like the dollar bill in your pocket. Let's suppose the government gives you a tax rebate in the form of $1,000 in, uh, in digital currency, a, a digital dollar in your digital wallet. Well, that digital currency can be programmed in various ways. The government might say, well, you can spend this, but you have to spend it locally. You cannot spend it abroad. The government may say, you have to spend this sometime in the next nine months because we're trying to stimulate the economy with more consumer spending. And if you don't spend it, 
you know, every month it's going to go down by 10% in value until the, the quote unquote money in your uh, digital wallet dis- disappears. They could also say you are able to spend it on these favored uh, industries or purchases like green energy for your home or an electric vehicle, but you're not able to, to spend it on these disfavored industries. You know, you cannot give donations to this or that uh, nonprofit group because, you know, they pr- promote hateful rhetoric against this or that group or what have you. So what you have in your pocket is a temporary voucher. It's not actually fungible uh, currency. It's not, it's not really a dollar in the same way that a dollar bill in your real wallet, in your real pocket might be. So even though they, we're using the same terms, this, this again goes to the perversion of language. And of course, this is going to be sold on the basis of convenience. You, you forget your wallet at home. Well, you've got your digital ID based on your face ID or your iris scan or your fingerprint. Uh, and that's connected up with your digital wallet. So don't worry about it. You forgot your passport. You forgot your wallet. You can sail on through. You know, you can you can travel. When you land, you'll be able to make purchases and rent your car and engage in various transactions. Assuming that you've been a good citizen and, you know, your shots are up to date and, you know, you haven't engaged in any behaviors that that might have um, docked your, your social credit score and compromised your ability to spend that digital currency, don't worry, you're going to be just fine. So that is the kind of system that we're talking about. And it's crucial for people to understand this right now because uh, the, the window for this is rapidly closing. The window to the, the full advent of digital currency and the elimination of cash, for example, and the elimination of decentralized cryptocurrencies or other forms of market exchanges is closing very fast. The feds in the United States have already floated uh, the trial balloon for the digital dollar. The Chinese have issued the, the EUN. Uh, they required all participants at the Beijing Olympics to use that app and to use that uh, centrally controlled digital currency from China and that app is still on their phone tracking all of their financial information. So they force it not only on their own population, but on people from around the world that um, that wanted to go to the Beijing Olympics. So this is coming. This is coming down the pike. But once the system is in place, it will become virtually impossible to resist it. Why? If you try to step out, uh, the algorithm will simply – you know, if you try to challenge it in any way, the algorithm will simply – Turn off your ability to engage in market transactions. Turn off your ability to travel. Um, you know, there's going to be a in the United States in the latest uh, government appropriations bill that was uh, signed by the president, passed by our legislative branch. Uh, I think it's by 2028. Every car is going to be hooked up to the internet, and it will have a kill switch on it. So something like the trucker's convoy to Ottawa would become impossible because if you start heading there. The algorithm or the government or, you know, whoever decides that this gathering is not going to happen can just push a button and, you know, your your truck or your car is not going to start. I think it's important to uh, – uh, you can easily – you can summarize the digital currency and this leads us into maybe, uh, you know, the, the theological considerations that we want to bring to bear on all this stuff. Uh, to think of it as a voucher system. It's not a currency. Yeah. It's a voucher. Like so, It's a reward for good behavior. Ultimately, it just means that you don't own anything, really, because the government holds this voucher and it can, under this control, 
you know, release it to you, not release right. it to you under conditions, social credit score, and so on, right? And so, in the Christian tradition, in terms of anthropology, one of the things, uh, so the the central notion is, of course, our anthropology comes from Christology. So, in God's humanity, we can see what the image of God really looks like, as Irenaeus put it. We never really knew what the image was like, and Christ showed up, and now we have the image of God. Um, and we and the church has tried to interpret then what humanity looks like based on that, you know, and we get our sense of dignity, our sense of freedom, our link to the mystery, to the tr- to, to the personal Trinity um, from that. And the Christian tradition has always maintained that one of the things is moral accountability and responsibility. Well, one way of being responsible is to have a stake in the game, and that means private property. And if you don't own anything, it goes against a fundamental anthropological. Uh, constant um, that plays then again into lack of responsibility, and I I hate to say it, but I I um, having grown up beside East Germany, you can train people not to need private property and therefore to feel no need for responsibility. Responsibility will always be to the state who becomes the willing ex- willingly accepted nanny or. or great Übervater, you know, the great father, um, to whom you then complain, but to whom you also become compliant because it holds everything in, in the hands. To, to, to use the uh, World Economic Forum's well-known mantra, you, you will own nothing and you will be happy. But that's a fundamental contradiction of what it means to be human, at least to, in the theological but did tradition. Jesus did Jesus actually own anything? Everything. But in his earthly, did he own a house? Did he own land? I'll let Doug answer that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the commandment not to steal presupposes private property. I mean, if you if you look at the the Old Testament, uh, there was there there were prov- provisions for the remission of debts, the jubilee year. Uh, the you know you can walk through the grain field if you're hungry and pick the grain and our Lord averts to that so there is this what what Catholics would call the universal destination of material goods that ultimately eschatologically at the end of time everything belongs to everyone uh, because everyone belongs to Christ and everything belongs to Christ but but that is um, that is the the ultimate reality in fulfillment that we are oriented to. But at the same time, in this temporal life, uh, you know, from f- from the, the 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 divine revelation and, and the law of the Old Testament on through Christ's own ministry and Paul's preaching about work and about labor uh, and about uh, the, the implications of that, which is being able to dispose of the fruits of one's labor. Private property is certainly implicit. Uh, you know, sending around a voluntary collection and, and as Paul does in many of his letters, pleading for generosity to the poor and solidarity with, um, with, with fellow Christians presupposes that, one, you know, one can only voluntarily give something if it, if it actually belongs to, to, to you in the first place. So, so I guess I'm just saying in terms of the life of Christ, it's at least arguable that he didn't own something. And therefore, I don't want to draw the correlation that... The pinnacle of our expression of freedom and responsibility is the ability to own something. I think rather what you find in something like the fourth gospel or the gospel of John is that it is indeed 
uh, self-determination principle in some way. That is to say, it's freedom. And Jesus' freedom is to serve the Father. I do only what the Father tells me to do. I say only what I hear from above. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. But we should remember the parable that Jesus employed uh, at the outset of his final week. The parable that actually precipitated the the um, settling of the plans of those who would falsely accuse and and uh, you know who would arrest and falsely accuse and convict uh, and and ultimately uh, with the help of the Roman authorities uh, execute Jesus. And what was that parable? It was it was the parable of the vineyard. The vineyard, he's very clear, belongs it too. It is the property of the of the absentee landlord who 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 is God, the God of Israel, who has sent his prophets uh, to to um, to. I'm mixing, of course, the literal dimension of the parable and the interpretation, but he he has sent his agents to collect what is due him because it is his vineyard, his property. And these are rejected and, and there's corruption, there's thievery, there's, there's pretending on the part of those who have let the vineyard, that is who have rented it and agreed to the contract, to keep the proceeds for themselves, to take from God what is God's. I will send my son. They will respect my son. Right. They will actually falsely accuse and take my son out of the vineyard and put him to death. So I don't think it is right to say that Jesus owned nothing. I, I think to, I think the earlier answer that Jesus owned everything because he is the 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 um, heir of the Father who owns it all, and that's precisely why he doesn't. Uh, set up a, a business, and he doesn't. Yes, he works as a carpenter. He joins us in our in our laboring condition, um, but he doesn't set up his own carpentry business or even maintain Joseph's, if that's the situation as we imagine. Um, he he does travel around. He has no place to lay his head. He's dependent on those who who donate to his his itinerant ministry and so forth. But but it's not because he. He has some uh, notion of radical poverty, such as as some of the Franciscans had, which led to a major row with 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 uh, the, with the Pope, because because the Pope understood that that in this fallen world before the eschaton, it isn't possible to run things uh, without defending. Uh, ownership and and private property and that sort of thing. So Catholic social teaching has always emphasized, first of all, the the libertas ecclesia, the, the the church is is has a liberty that comes to it from God, not from the state. Secondly, the liberty <coughs> of the family that that the state must not interfere in the in the pre political pre um, uh, uh, legal standing of the family and thirdly of course the, the 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 liberty of the individual including the right to property and to owning property because in in the present state of things 
all of all of the true liberties that go much much deeper than anything to do with property material property they require a certain respect for liberty that includes private property and Jesus was not propertyless the vineyard was his father's now of course the vineyard in the parable is Israel not the entire cosmos but what is Israel Israel is that is that new eden by which god is restoring a cosmos contaminated by sin and and that while i'm on the the topic um we we talked about sin earlier and and the importance aaron was was emphasizing the importance of recovering a doctrine of uh, uh, a meaningful doctrine of original sin um this People, people are sinners. We are all sinners. And we need a savior. When you stop recognizing that the vineyard belongs to the father and that the father has sent the son to be our savior, what happens? You transfer that need for a savior to the state. You, you, you have not only the nanny state, but you have the savior state. Um, as I called it long ago in an article in uh, Touchstone, it, it's it, you. You have this devotion to the state as your savior, and of course, because the state is made up of sinners, just like the general populace, uh, it's it, it's it's very um, likely that the that the um, that the state that is the agents who currently um, act as um, managers of the state, whether they're bureaucrats or elected officials or the people in the public-private partnerships that now seem to organize everything, they, they take advantage of you. Um, they are prepared to, to manipulate language and to manipulate property and to manipulate laws and to manipulate constitutions and to manipulate international order in such a way as to get round the barriers of, uh, that, that should prevent them from creating artificial crises through which they take even further advantage of those who look to them to save them. You, you can't be a savior without a problem from which to save people. If it's not sin, and if the savior is not the crucified and risen Christ, what is the problem and who's the savior? Well, they create the problems and they make themselves the savior and people who need a savior turn to them to save. So that's, that's part of what we're dealing with here. And I think it's a quite fundamental part of what we're dealing with. I mean, John Calvin said we're incurably religious and we have incurably religious structures that repeat themselves at various levels right. as well. And we're seeing that. And one of the ironies is that when the government becomes your savior, they also feel the pressure to create um, a utopic state for us. So we are going to bring in the kingdom. We are going to bring in the reign of God. We are going to bring you into the new Eden. We've seen this repeated throughout history. But in order to do that, we need to quell your freedom. We need to control you. We need to herd you like animals. And this is, this is where I think we start to get into some interesting biblical anthropology in terms of what does it mean to be human? God gives us a degree of freedom that staggers the imagination. Yes, and, and here's, here's uh, another <clears throat> biblical image that, that people might ponder if they want a biblical frame of reference for thinking about all of this. The, the 
the eschatological reality that is brought about with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and will be perfected with the with the uh, perfecting of creation in the general resurrection and renewal of what Jesus called the regeneration or renewal of all things um, is characterized in this wonderfully intimate fashion in one of those letters in in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 that we were talking about earlier, um, where Jesus promises to give to the faithful a name, a name known only to him. And between him and them, this entirely personalizing naming. Remember, creation story begins, as far as humans go, with with. Adam naming the animals. But here we have our Lord having become himself a rational animal, incarnate, and giving a name to the heirs of Adam who are faithful, a name. Now, what's happening around us? Our names are being replaced with numbers, as you do in a prison. Or a concentration camp. Or a concentration camp with a tattoo (coughs) on your arm. And it's it's a panopticon-type prison where they know everything about you, and this number is very, very useful because you cannot do anything without this number. And this number is not personal. It's it's your identity as they ascribe it, but it's mechanical. It's It's a product of artificial intelligence, and it is handled artificially there's no rational volitional agent deserving of freedom there there's only a product there's only uh, something that can be identified with ones and zeros ultimately in these algorithms that's the a parody it's not probably a conscious parody but it is a parody of the promise of our lord to complete your personalization as someone in the image of God and in communion with God himself and with all who will eternally enjoy God and one another in God, as Augustine says. It's a parody of that that actually takes away any element of personhood. And the corruption of language that we were talking about earlier goes with that. You, you, you turn that which is distinctive about the human animal He's naming the animals, but he realizes in doing that that he's distinct from all the animals. But he has, he has God as a conversation partner, but he doesn't yet have Eve. And, and the, the process of personalization of the human being that is going on and is, is foreshadowed in those foundational narratives is completed at the other end of the canon in, in what Jesus says to the faithful in these churches. But the context in which we have to persevere and and pass this testing is one in which we are being depersonalized and our names and our faces are being withdrawn. The faces turn into bi- fixed geometric, biometric material and the names being turned into numbers. It's, it's, a, it's a process of depersonalization that also strips us of meaningful property and the liberty to, to 
order your own affairs as a rational, volitional agent and to do so in families, in homes and properties like this and with the freedom to go when you leave here where you want to go and nobody as yet can push the button on your car and make it stop working. Um, so I, I think I think people need to the, – these texts that we – here, day by day and week by week, in the lectionaries and in our readings of the scripture, God gave us those texts. He gave us them as, as um, to, to deepen our understanding and also to, as Augustine constantly stresses, to, to let us know what divine providence is up to and, and to give us some understanding of where we are headed in God's care. But it, it means also that we, that we have to understand where the evil one would prefer to head us in his corruption of our scriptures, in his confusion of our understanding, and in creating coercive forces that will prevent us from practicing the art of personhood. Yes. I, I would add to that that it also instrumentalizes the body as 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 an instrument to be used in transactions, including financial transactions. So rather than the eyes or the iris being the mysterious window into the soul and the locus of deep personal connection, or the face being the place where uh, the, the heart uh, and the person is most fully revealed, they, they are reduced to <laughs> a, a, a device to scan a set of geometric points uh, to scan for the purposes of various market and other transactions. And Hannah Arendt and Matthias Desmond in his recent book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, they point out that totalitarian systems always reduce nature from a complex, beautiful, organic whole to an artificial system, a mechanized system in order to more fully control it. And we, C.S. Lewis saw this co coming back in the 1940s. He wrote in The Abolition of Man, when we turn our science and technology, uh, not just externally toward uh, the lived world uh, around, or the, the environment of our uh, lived experience, but when we turn these things against ourselves in various ways, um, and and we we try to make man subject to these technologies and these mechanisms of technological control, what we end up with is always the, the, the control of a few men over the masses, right? So somebody's going to be pulling the levers on this system. Somebody's going to be programming the algorithm. Somebody's going to be deciding which behaviors to nudge in which direction. And, you know, they may be well-intentioned, they may be well-meaning, but, uh, they're not God, and regardless of well whether they're well-intentioned, uh, should we have uh, a, a small handful of elites, a kind of oligarchy or plutocracy where a small number of people are, are making decisions that, sh that coercively shape the behavior of everyone else? That, that seems to me to be uh, a complete inversion of the vision of Christian fulfillment uh, and and the the social life that the church is trying to cultivate in its members. It's also really <clears throat> uh, pernicious in how it takes what is actually individual to us, like our iris or 
fingerprint or whatnot to actually accomplish the opposite, to depersonalize us and, and dehumanize us and make us uh, into the mass, which is really per, um, pernicious. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this and the surveillance that um, the government seeks of us, and I can only think that this is a type of surveillance that it seeks that really only belongs to God and uh, not to the state. And so I thought I would um, do a interpretive reading of Psalm 139 here, uh, just a few verses that might um, capture where, where this is going and how this psalm might be rewritten in a digital ID surveillance world. So here goes. Well, let's see if it uh, rings any bells with anybody. O state, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar, and you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O state, know it completely. You hem me behind and before, and your long arm is upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your surveillance? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your digital hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I think this is this is this this is the reality that we may be going into, and um, as Christians, we have to resist it, and once again be willing to pay the price for that. This is as close as I can see we're getting to something like um, what Revelation thirteen talks about: the mark of the beast, without which you cannot buy or sell. I think this is the demolition of intimacy. One of the things that God has given us as embodied creatures is the capacity to reveal ourselves as an I, and also to conceal ourselves from one another. And intimacy happens when I choose to reveal myself to another and be known by them. But now we're coming into a situation, as Aaron was describing earlier, where I can um, be known without my choosing to reveal myself. This is a dubious, dubious place to be. And it links for me, where Douglas was talking about parodies, I think about Revelation 12 and 13. And you have a display of a false trinity there with the dragon and the two beasts, who are characterized symbolically after the fashion of God himself, adorned in all of these wonderful images that are germane to God's nature and not the dragon or the beast's nature. So you have a parody of God, but you we are also getting a parody of humanity as well. And this this seems to dovetail with this idea of digitization. Yes, and with digitization and, and many other elements of our current culture, which which we puzzle over, why why do why do um, agents, whether of commerce or of the state or of both, um, 
bother themselves when they clearly have these large-scale plans, rolling out digital currencies, rolling out smart cities, etc., um, rolling out endless uh, uh, therapeutical products for the, you know, for the uh, immune system and the health system and so forth. When they have these, clearly have these large-scale agendas, whatever you make of them, they clearly have them. Why do they bother themselves with promoting um, uh, the the kind of the false uh, uh, individualized and ultimately impersonal um, autonomy of the self so that the, the central statement of the self is I am who I say I am and you must recognize me as such. The divine name imported into a defense of, uh, uh, of um, things that any previous generation in any culture would have regarded as madness – um, I think because in, in, in trying to expropriate divine functions, it's useful to these agents who are acting on a large scale to teach, to teach individuals to themselves try to be as God. Uh, but they're going to be no match for the state. And maybe some of our listeners who who um, struggle with these large-scale questions and don't understand much about artificial intelligence and digital currencies and digital IDs and, and uh, all of this seems very much beyond their comprehension, I sympathize. Uh, I mean, I'm just a theologian after all. Uh, but – uh, but something that we can all understand well from the past three years, the masking of the face, that you don't have to be high tech. These masks were not high tech. <laughs> the wearing of them was not high tech. The collection of them to dispose of them was not high tech. There's nothing high tech about it. It's, it's a symbol of the conquest of the face. I bring you back to Eisenheim and that panel in which Mary is holding the baby Jesus, and the light from heaven is shining on the baby, and from the baby's face, reflecting into the face of Mary, in that intimacy of the family, and ultimately in the context of the altarpiece, the family of God, the family that is named by the Father, with a name mediated by the mediator in this intimacy, this is what is being conquered. This is what is being taken away. Think of Moses coming down from Sinai, his face aglow from the intimacy with God, and he masks himself because the people can't stand the brightness of the light of God. That's echoed in the Transfiguration story with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Um, but this is being taken away. Our faces are scanned by computers and reduced, as I said, to these geometric points by which we are identified and therefore controlled. There is at least one surveillance camera for every eight or nine people in the world. These Some cities, I think London, which has the most surveillance cameras anywhere outside of China, the ratio right now is about four to one. Yeah. So Beijing is higher, I think. Yeah. Um, but China's saying, like two to one. You know, the, the, the evil one works through imitation and deprivation. Yeah. 
he he's not creative he didn't make the world mm-hmm. and and so he takes what god gives and deprives it of the goodness that is in it and so perverts it when we when we have these paradigmatic biblical narratives and even um, parables and so forth we we need to understand that 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 they matter you see that that they tell us the true nature of things and and in order to substitute something false you have to take those and parody them you have to thin them out take the good out of them and insert something leave them empty or insert something that does not belong there and this is what we're seeing happening. It's not an accident that we are using our technological prowess to do these kinds of things. There's nothing wrong with being technologically able. There's nothing wrong with the technology itself. But we are using it in these ways because we are partnering, I fear, with the evil one in trying to destroy from the inside the goodness that God has given and the promises that God has made. The, the prelapsarian Adam in Second Temple Jewish literature is conceptualized as a figure of radiating light-filled glory. And um, this glory is concentrated in the face. Mm-hmm. And um, New Testament will pick this up when it talks about we with unveiled faces. Yes. And if, if we... If we coming back to the churches, if we had said, look, whatever whatever's going on out there, when we worship God, we do not veil our faces. We approach the altar of God with unveiled face, and we seek to reflect the glory of God to one another. That's a non-negotiable. All right? That's a non-negotiable. Absolutely. The ironic benediction, this is to be in the invitation of God as well, the ironic benediction is, and may his face shine upon you. Exactly. And grant you peace. I pray that every night for my children. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to wrap things up here, and I'm going to give everyone a chance to just give some concluding thoughts, encouragement to the church, a final word, a passing blow, if you like. (laughs) Um, But what I'd like to say to our listeners prior to uh, you guys having your final word and give you a chance to think here for a second is... I think where we're going to go during the next podcast is to really dig down deep and explore these non-negotiables. What is non-negotiable for the church? Should the Lord allow us to be tested again? How are we going to know that we are in a test? And what things are we unwilling to relinquish? Will it be maybe um, gathering together that we say, nope, Um, As Aaron said at the beginning of this podcast, um, that is one thing that we should always allow open is for the voluntary participation in the worship of the people of God. If you don't want to come, that's your choice. But maybe the church should keep the doors open no matter what peril faces us or particularly in the face of whatever peril faces us. So um, next podcast, stay tuned. We're going to explore that. Uh, Prior to closing this off, though, I invite you to share any final or passing thoughts. Yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at that. Um, so I think Douglas has given us uh, a good category for people to think uh, and to reflect on that can foster resistance to 
the currently already in place and the perhaps being intensified by the medical security state. State as an idol and idols enslave, as we know. Um, and that's the notion of the person. So if we think theologically, Christologically, biblically with the Christian tradition, to focus on the person and what that means, that the person is fundamentally something that is, for the human person, embodied, but also transcends the body, that is fundamentally related to uh, freedom and sociality and responsibility, because Christ, who is the ultimate, uh, you know, free, and I'll say this with the theological qualification, uh, the ultimate free person who gives his life in responsibility for others so that freedom is always tied to responsibility, but the two cannot be separated. So if you have a kind of a form of a, a society that deprecates personal freedom and personal responsibility, as the surveillance state clearly does, that's something that we can resist and uh, we can learn through our theology, our liturgy, our prayer, which is a fundamental personal address, and so on, uh, that can resistance can be be brought. And then I think another one is to think about technology. I think Christians need to think theologically about technology and in these kind of personalist terms. And I actually slightly disagree. I don't think that the, uh, technology is simply neutral. I think various technologies have uh, various levels of being able to to make us think ourselves in technological terms. And I think that's a big issue because a lot of the stuff that comes down the pike uh, that shores up the biomedical uh, surveillance and security state is run and is promoted by people that we can group summarily under the name of transhumanists. And transhumanists have developed technology like the iPhone and so on deliberately uh, to pull us into thinking our, about our identity like an iPhone, a, you know, a bunch of uh, patterns and behaviors that are stored somewhere that can be replicated, can be uploaded, that that's who we are. So our use of technology, I think, is important to reflect on, um, you know, because we're being groomed all the time into the impersonal, into the social distancing, into the virtual. And I think we have to develop a sense of how can we use it, but but device, uh, you know, come up with, with uh, devices that save the soul, that, that the technology serves us, but we don't become technologized through it. I think those are important points to keep in mind. I would just encourage Christians to find ways rooted in faith to overcome whatever inferiority complex we have vis-a-vis -vis the culture or vis-a-vis the experts. We have been given something um, freely by our Lord that has been handed on to us that is a gift of grace that we did not deserve and that we don't have ownership of <laughs> itself, but that we are responsible for spreading. And this, uh, this deposit of faith uh, is not ours to to squander or to compromise because it it belongs to uh, what God revealed to us in Christ, uh, and and the church must be the the steward of that, and and that is a gift to the world, and so 
whatever the circumstances, whether it's it's warfare, whether it's a plague, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's ordinary peacetime when life feels more or less normal, the church's mission is always the same. So, oh, there's a crisis. Let's throw up our hands in the air because we don't know what to do. And let's listen to people who are proclaiming that they know what everyone should do. That should never be the stance of a Christian. We always know what to do because Jesus told us what to do when he said things like, do this in remembrance of me at the end of the institution of the Eucharist. When he said things like, go out to all nations uh, and, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. We know what to do. Uh, in any and all circumstances. And, uh, and and that shouldn't make us arrogant because we know certain things that a person uh, without the gift of faith or who has not embraced the faith may not know. It should make us very humble, but also it's, it's, a, it's a blessed burden placed on our shoulders to uh, never pretend that we don't know <laughs> what we're supposed to be about, um, because there are those perennial truths and and perennial, perennially relevant mandates that are that are always there for us, and that each and every moment of our existence needs to be oriented toward trying to live in such a way that we're doing what we can to live those things out. And if the church can remember that, I mean, ultimately what we saw during the pandemic among many of the failures of Christians just boils down to a lack of faith. Do you actually believe in what you profess to believe or do you not? Or when push comes to shove or when difficulties arise, do you become bewildered and clueless and, uh, and, and spinning around, uh, in a kind of dizzying fog such that uh, any charlatan uh, can point you in the direction that they want you to go. That, that's not, that's not the life of a Christian. So I, I would, I would um, add this, that, that some people seem to think it was possible to privatize their relation to God. So when the churches were closed, uh, they, they responded as if, well, good, you know, this, this protects my body somehow. And what's really important, admittedly, concerns the soul. But the soul, the soul can have this direct relation with God. So I will continue to take in what nurture I can through the means, the technological means that are available, and I will simply concentrate on my private personal relation with God. I, I think um, uh, they were getting it wrong on both counts. It wasn't protecting their body. It wasn't even strengthening their immune system. It was doing the opposite. Uh, but more importantly, it wasn't delivering uh, their soul into some condition of advance in intimacy with God because God has not established uh, a, a 
a relation between God and the soul that is that is strictly individualistic. God has, by becoming the Son of God, becoming incarnate, has has created with the through the work of the Spirit a community, a city of God, a polis. The gospel has political implications and the advance of intimacy with God is not just for the 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 inscrutable uh, personal realm of the individual in contemplation of God it is a it is a city of the enjoyment of God and of one another in God as Augustine says so it has p- political dimensions built into it and and we have to continue to to ponder all of those. It is not anti-technological, but it is certainly political in such a way as to call profoundly into question the intrusion of this technology into people's lives in a way that expands certain conveniences, but at the same time withdraws their liberty to function as the people of God. So... Uh, we we need to be thinking about all of those dimensions going forward and and making certain that we are not um, uh, giving away or giving up that which is an essential and crucial component to our growth as the people of God and our readiness as the church to receive our Lord when he comes. Excellent. I would just say, uh, yeah, as my last word, what has been already said here by our members, that um, where do we look for solutions to this problem that's, that we are facing? I don't believe we can look for a political solution, uh, such as we get the right person elected to office, we get the right person in the presidency, in the prime ministership, and this will, this will solve itself. It won't. At the, at the very best, it might delay it a bit, but uh, that's, that's, that's all it's going to do. And as has already been said, the solution here is always in God's revelation. And uh, his, um, his revelation to us about uh, the fact that we belong to him and the church is his. And it is his kingdom that we are seeking to uh, be, um, be citizens of. And... Um, and the other thing, the other thing, uh, the last thing I would say is, the, the the revelation is clear that things are going to get bad before they get better, and uh, we just have to steel ourselves to that. That if we if we seek to follow God and maintain His truth in our in our lives and and witness it to uh, to the rest of the world, we had better be prepared to be persona non grata in the eyes of our um, society and certainly in the eyes of the enemy. And we just, have to, we just have to realize that we will have a price to pay, but it is a price that has been paid uh, many times by, by those who have preceded us, and it was a price that was paid by our Lord. And now it may be our turn. Jesus tells us to keep watch. John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming even now, many Antichrists have come. 
this is how we know it is the last hour. We have been living in the last hour since the advent of Christ, and our call is not necessarily to have everything figured out. We won't. Our call is to be faithful, and my encouragement is to remember that we are held in God's cradle of grace, in a womb of grace. We are not going to get this perfectly. We are going to falter. We are going to fail, but the call upon us is to pursue faithfulness. A song that was on my heart this morning was the song from Rich Mullins. And in light of everything that has gone on, I just want to read a couple of verses from this song of Rich Mullins, which I think brings comfort and reminds us of our common identity um, as people who are very broken, but for whom there is great grace. He says this, it's a song called, "Not We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. Well, it took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters in the sea, but it only took one little lie to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. And they say that one day Joshua, he made the sun stand still in the sky, but I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. We are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. But we serve a strong God, and he is coming for us. So let us continue to live in this hope and encourage each other while it is still day.